All right. I, I know there's no one here right now, but I am just trying to invite you in. There we go. <laughs> uh, look at me managing um, an amazing ability to make up as I go along. Hi, guys. I'm glad a lot of you made it back in. So winging it completely. Breakfast show with Tabitha McIntosh all over again. Uh, if you missed the beginning, we are talking about Mean Girls. And we just got to a really exciting juncture before I realized that everyone had disappeared. And maybe it wasn't just because you were all bullying me. So this is what's happening. Hi, Dan. Nice to see you. Um, so researchers following in that amazing realization, um, the the researcher, by the way, has got the beautiful name Bjorkvist. So researchers following in Bjorkvist's footsteps noted that up to the age of four, girls tend to be aggressive at the same rates and in the same ways as boys, grabbing toys, pushing and hitting. Later on, however, social expectations force their hostilities underground, where their assaults on one another are more indirect, less physical and less visible to adults. So Although Matt's experience of the hair weave at school would suggest that, of course, physical violence continues among girls, um, that's where we get our sort of, I know I'm back, aren't I clever, Tom? I managed to sort it out. This is me who in the first week managed to lock everyone out of the uh, Podbeam suite twice in a row, I think. But look at me now, I can launch my own live shows. It's amazing. Your little girl's all grown up and ready to start bullying people. The argument here, the feminist argument, is where we get the second wave, third wave feminist argument, is that, in fact, this is where we get the mean girls are actually feminist icons argument, where we start to see the beginnings of it or how it could work. Because what these social researchers are discovering is that boys and girls are largely functioning the same way until something in the environment changes where the expression of girls' anger is no longer allowable where physical expression of anger is no longer allowable. And that's the point at which they become mean. All right, so as we'll see when we get to Veruca Salt in a little bit, um, some people, you know, as early as the late 80s, early 90s, the riot girl movement, are reclaiming those mean girls as, as yeah, feminist icons, as expressions of need and rage and other things that, that girls have been acculturated to, um, to think are not appropriate for femininity. I think this is a really dubious argument, by the way, just signposting that in advance. When we get to some of the mean girls, do we really think that Scarlett O'Hara, for example, is a fantastic example of hashtag lean in feminism? But that is the argument. And you can see it developing here. Why do these adolescent girls bully so much? The researchers are saying because the patriarchy is oppressing them, essentially, the social norms of patriarchy. <laughs> so, and then I love this because then they went on a field field survey within American schools. In the last few years, a group of young psychologists um, at the University of Minnesota has pushed this work much further, observing girls in naturalistic settings, exploring the psychological foundations for nastiness, and asking adults to take relational aggression, especially in sixth and seventh grade, so that's year seven and year eight. Um, when it tends to be worse, as seriously as they do more familiar forms of bullying. So again, I, I feel like these researchers, as many of you have said, um, as Martin pointed out, they seem to have just simply discovered the existence of, uh, of women in literature or women's lives. Or as Matt pointed out again, bringing it up again, there were so many hair snatching incidents when they were at school 
that um that they called the resulting bundle of hair that had been pulled out the hair weave right not the hair weave that wouldn't be funny i see i can't even go back to the quotation now because the old show killed itself cruelly uh matt if you're there which i can see you are what was the name of the the ball of hair again tumbleweave thank you very much yes the tumbleweave um yeah i don't they seem to be thinking that we need to be told this that year seven and eight form tutors might not know that that bullying is occurring among girls and instead we might like to disguise ourselves and prowl among the corridors of high schools noting that actually girls aren't that nice yeah, yeah very strange uh rachel simmons is um odd girl out the hidden culture of aggression in girls again so it's hidden aggression hidden violence I never experienced it as particularly hidden, but apparently it is to all of these adults who have brain wiped their experience of childhood. Unlike boys who tend to bully acquaintances or strangers, girls frequently attack within tightly knit friendship networks, making aggression harder to identify and intensifying the damage to the victims. Within the hidden culture of aggression, girls fight with body language and relationships instead of fists and knives. In this world, friendship is a weapon, and the sting of a shout pales in comparison to a day of someone's silence. There is no gesture more devastating than the back turning away. Okay, so again, what, what is striking to me here is that they're discussing all these things as if they're new, as if this is a brand new revelation, as if they are, you know, silent upon a peak in Darien to take Keats's most clumsy poem, discovering girls for the first time. Yet there's no gesture more devastating than the back turning away. Like, guys, did you not spend your entire childhood with, you know, Sharon picking up her desk and moving it a quarter of a centimeter away, um, thus killing you for the entire rest of English in periods five and six? I mean, I think most of us did. Anyway, so in a, that, <laughs> this is the kind of cultural forgetting that you see. So this, uh, this woman, Katie Hurley, has written a book for, again, American parents aimed at the elementary and middle school set. So primary up, up to year six. And uh, she's desperately trying to get in on the queen bees and wannabes mean girl book selling market. And she says, um, what's it called here? Child and adolescent psychotherapist Katie Hurley shows parents of young girls how to nip mean girl behavior in the bud. Right. So this is her setup. Once upon a time, mean girls primarily existed in high school, while elementary school age girls spent hours at play and enjoyed friendships without much drama. Uh huh. I'm, I'm going to read that one again. Once upon a time, mean girls primarily existed in high school, while elementary school age girls, that's up to year six, spent hours at play and enjoyed friendships without much drama. What are you talking about? Absolute madness. Mal is saying being sent to Coventry tends to be a girl thing. Yep, being sent to Coventry, being made. Um, I never had a best friend as a child. I was too tall and weird. Um, but I, I got to be the occasional beneficiary of the fallout of girl politics when people who had temporarily broken up with their best friends due to some unforgivable crime um, would then be temporary best friends with me. It was very handy. So I'd have a brief halcyon day in the sun where I was someone's best friend. And then, um, and then of course, they'd reconcile and, and I would be single once more, tragically. Exactly. Dan is saying it's all post-feminist headers. Yeah. And, and Matt is saying the worst girl on girl bullying I ever saw was in third grade. Yeah. 
all girls school, but we were nice, says Sophia. <laughs> you, I bet you weren't that. Well, maybe you were. Maybe you were lovely. But yeah, post-feminist Heather's absolutely right, Dan. I look, the, the cultural forgetting that seems to go on on the most deranged and regular basis is really quite staggering. Mean Girls is just an updated Heather's with less murder and, and frankly, all the worst for it. Um, but, but the idea even that Mean Girls in the, in the 80s managed to uncover the truth that, that girls can be cruel to each other is staggering. And again, the assertion that once upon a time, girls enjoyed friendship without much drama is mad. So as we progress on, again, to my beloved listeners, I'd like us to think, do we agree that this is the product of, um, of patriarchal social norms that deny women the right to physical anger and rage, therefore causing them to turn those into hidden cues? Because while I don't personally think that any of our, as teachers, experience of, of relational aggression, is what the Americans call it, is particularly hidden. Um, miss, she's bullying me. Miss, she said mean things about me. None of that is hidden. Um, do we buy that? Do we think that that this should be seen through a sort of feminist lens as, as these are our feminist icons resisting acculturation? Mm. Uh, are Mean Girls actually feminist icons? Right. So that is a hard argument. It's an okay argument if you take it on the kind of surface level of what happens to female rage. It can't be expressed. Therefore, it gets internalized. Therefore, it gets shared among acceptable targets. But when you actually start applying it to some of our literary characters, that's when it gets a bit ropey. So I'll let someone else make that argument instead. Um, this is a, an article called In Defense of Mean Girls by in young adult literature by the author Haley Krischer, who herself has written a book about mean girls. But in her book, the mean girls are all the heroines. They're not the outgroup kids. And then the, the real heroine decides that she won't be like them. She's like, no, mean girls are, are humans too. If you cut them, do they not bleed mean, right? They take, this is the argument, they take control of their own lives, despite the judgment of others. Mean girls, with a few exceptions, is really just code for rebellion. It's code for girls who step outside the box. These are angry girls, frustrated girls. They're flawed girls. They're misunderstood girls. They're all girls who aren't behaving in the way society expects them to. So you may be wondering, which feminist icons is she talking about there? Who are the characters she's just mentioned who are flawed, misunderstood, but fundamentally wonderful independent spirits right independent women yes see martin's pointing out like witch or weird women so women who don't conform women who are therefore outgroup out of status so rather than thinking of them as the bullies she's asking us to think about them as the victims and again though let's see which characters she's particularly picked nelly olsen from the little house on the prairie books and tv show if you're old enough to have watched that veruca salt from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and Amy March from Little Women. These three, angry girls, frustrated girls, flawed girls, misunderstood girls, potential feminist heroes. Let's find out. Well, let's start with Amy March, because I've picked on her for two shows in a row now. Um, Amy, Amy, of course, from Little Women, not perfect like Beth, not interesting like Joe, not 
Meg, like Meg, oh, I really can't bear Meg, actually. Like, Meg, what, what does she care about? Makeup and losing her glove. Yeah, I hated Nellie Olsen too, Mel, and we'll get to why we should all loathe Nellie Olsen and why she is not our hashtag feminist hero any second now. Yeah, Matt's saying this feels like the same issue of just letting women, women and girls be women and girls. Sabia's saying you wanted Joe's life. Joe, really? Did you want to marry a middle-aged German man? Is that what you wanted? Because that is not what I wanted for Joe. That that didn't make me happy. Exactly. Why do they have to be feminist heroes? It's the I feel like it's the worst kind of trite pretend feminism, like the kind of feminism, hashtag feminism that everyone rolls their eyes at because you've gone to actual monsters. But maybe not in the case of Amy. Amy redeems herself. Um, Amy's good at art. Amy has a, a tragically dying child by the time we get further on in the book. So we, we have to love Amy, I guess. But there is an entire Amy March apologism industrial complex that I'll just indicate by reading you three headlines. If you just search Amy March mean, you get things like this. In defense of Amy March, the once derided sister of Little Women, Little Women Review, why we need to stop hating Amy March. And Greta Gerwig's Little Women finally gives Amy her due. There are an awful lot of angry female writers out there who feel like we've never appreciated Amy March as, mu as much as we should. So why do we hate Amy, those of us who hate Amy? I'll read you a line from Little Women that really, really gets to the point of why Amy is unforgivable for so many of us. Scold as much as you like. You'll never see your silly old book again, cried Amy, getting excited in her turn. Why not? I burned it up. Yeah. In a fit of pique, she takes her sister Joe's manuscript novel and burns it. Now, in addition to that, she eats pickled limes, which... I still, and this is the third week in a row I've mentioned the pickle line obsession, don't get it. A, they don't sound sweet. B, they sound messy. C, she's sneaking them into class in a paper bag. So D, all her books are getting messy. And E, then she bullies that poor teacher who insists on, on giving her the pickled limes. Uh, Dan is saying the positioning of girls as dominant and angry is a backlash, surely, to empowerment. As soon as we have a narrative that pushes towards equality, we have the post-feminist backlash of women being brutal without cause. <laughs> See, Dan, I find that a seductive argument, and I think it works really well until we drill down into the details. So the larger media representation, perhaps, if we therefore see Heathers as, um, as part of the backlash, which, as I'm sure... Well, Dan actually is much younger than me, so he won't remember Susan Faludi's backlash and the whole discussion surrounding that in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, is Mean Girls a backlash to second wave feminism? Is the argument there? It's, it's, it's really, yeah, Mal is saying Amy took Joe's life. Mal agrees that Amy is not a feminist icon. Mal can't stand the book. Mal, she burnt the book. So mean. <laughs> You know, in fairness, I think it was a really bad book. And given that she did marry a middle-aged German man instead of Laurie, who Amy married instead, like, maybe there's something to be said for Amy. <coughs> but yeah, so so that's Amy. Selfish, self-centered, broken, flawed, redeemable. Does she seem like a feminist icon who's getting out her rage in a way that's not acceptable for other girls in the mid-century America, I'm not sure. Um, but certainly Veruca Salt. Veruca Salt's an interesting one because she is reclaimed by um, riot girl feminism in the late 80s, early 90s. She's mentioned specifically here by this young adult author as being an, an icon of let's reclaim the angry mean girl. So just 
just a brief extract then to really assess on the ground the feminist iconness of Veruca Salt. Hey, mummy, shouted Veruca Salt suddenly. I've decided I want a squirrel. Get me one of those squirrels. Don't be silly, sweetheart, said Mrs. Salt. These all belong to Mr. Wonka. I don't care about that, shouted Veruca. I want one. All I've got at home is two dogs and four cats and six bunny rabbits and two parakeets and three canaries and a green parrot and a turtle and a bowl of goldfish and a cage of white mice and a silly old hamster. I want a squirrel. All right, my pet, Mrs. Salt said soothingly. Mummy will get you a squirrel just as soon as she possibly can. But I don't want any old squirrel, Veruca shouted. I want a trained squirrel. I'm just going to catch up with <laughs> catching up with your messages there. Oh, hell no, says Mal. No, we're not reclaiming Veruca Salt. And Matt says, entitled little bleep. I think the argument, the argument for the riot girl thing is that women's needs, absolute untempered demands, taking what you want is something that, that girls are acculturated. Again, this is me just stating an argument, not making an argument. That girls are acculturated to put themselves to the back, to not demand, to not... Um, to not art, demand things, but instead, you know, people please and all of those things. And that therefore we will claim Veruca as our true selves, our screaming female id that wants the world and wants it now. Um, I can see I've got messages. I'm assuming that all of them are violently disagreeing with this particular argument. Yeah, exactly. Exactly beautiful. So Matt says the original Karen. And I was actually going to say, does this not seem, guys, very much like um, the critique of, of white feminism, specifically middle class white American feminism um, that verges with Karenhood, where it becomes simply about entitlement, right? Especially about consumption, possession, using people, using resources without any kind of larger reflection about intersectional ways. Or, or even basic analysis of the self about what that means. So is it feminist to just demand stuff? Dan saying exposes Dan, you're on fire this morning and you're still going to go be some kind of magical head of an MAT even after all you're dropping all this fire. Exposes the neoliberal rhetoric of individualism. Girls have to then give way to this within a structure which perpetuates the patriarchy. This is against white feminism in particular. I agree. Now, I think that's that's beautifully put, the neoliberal rhetoric of individualism. And that would go to, um, what was that? I can't remember who wrote it, that lean-in feminism, you know, that you you too can have your seat at the board table of our vulture capitalist company that is destroying entire nations or of Facebook, because I think she's CEO of Facebook, wasn't she? Something. Uh, yeah. So, and people push back against that. So, Veruca Salt, Mean Girls, Sheryl Sandberg, that's it. Yeah. I haven't actually read it. I'm just mean about it, Mal. Is that fair? Am I being a mean girl? Almost certainly being a mean girl. <laughs> so Veruca Salt, I don't think she stands up as a feminist icon, but as Dan pointed out, and as many of you are pointing out, she does work beautifully for a particular version of something, the, the Karenification of the idea of female empowerment. Um, if we go with the idea that expressing anger, rage, and entitlement is forbidden to girls, which is why they become mean. The corollary then becomes, therefore, we should be monsters of swaggering entitlement, which I'm not sure that works. Uh, let's go to Nellie Olson. Now, some of you said you knew Nellie Olson. 
She did Little House on the Prairie, which are a series of books, obviously written in the 1940s and 50s about Laura Ingalls Wilder's time growing up um, in on the border of the expanding United States. Um, but the television series that was on in the 80s was <laughs> solidified Nellie Olson as the meanest girl who ever was. Uh, some headlines. If you type in Nellie Olson again, just Nellie Olson in Google, it explodes with hatred. The bitch is back. Little House on the Prairie's original mean girl. She's the original mean girl, says someone else. And then there's a whole book just about Nellie, which I'm quite fond of the idea of. The Three Faces of Nellie, the real story behind Laura Ingalls Wilder's Nellie Olson. What made Nellie so awful? What was it about Nellie Olson that, <laughs> yeah, Mal is saying, I wanted Charles Ingalls to be my dad. And Mal is also saying she's another spoiled girl indulged by her weak father. Yes, yeah, she is. She is Veruca Salt. She is uh, neoliberal individualism, to use Dan's argument, in, in 19th century form. Because she has those wax dolls, doesn't she, Mal? Didn't you yearn for them, even though I never liked dolls myself? Her mere possession of them. Laura's angry lust for those dolls that she could never have, but Nellie always had, came through, shone through on those pages. So in addition to being mean, she's also privileged and entitled. Yeah, Mal is saying she hated dolls. I never quite knew what to do with dolls. I have lots of Cindy dolls because I was a girl in the 70s in Britain. So we had our own British version of Barbie who had a weirdly bulbous forehead and, and did not look so happy, let me tell you. Slightly more sane proportions. But I didn't ever know what to do with her. So what I used to do was put all her clothes on, literally all her clothes on, so that she was bulked out like the Michelin man. And, and I called it um, Cindy Goes Arctic Exploring. And then, you know, but that was it. That was the end of the game. Just involved putting her clothes on. <laughs> Mal is saying, I didn't understand them. I had a dog. Well much better. Sabir never had dolls, has computers, have male friends. An awful lot of us didn't find those um, those uh, particular manifestations of generic girlhood particularly compelling. But Nellie Olsen did. And, and Nellie Olsen, like Veruca Salt, was indulged. So establishing a pattern absolutely here. Is it just that girls are mean? No, in these particular icons of, of mean girl in cultural history, they're also very, very rich and entitled. Of course, the same thing is true in Mean Girls, the film. Regina George is um, yeah, a, a rich girl with a terrible mother, but she's still rich. So again, a, a weird manifestation of or backlash against a certain kind of entitled Karen status feminism um, or an attempt to render feminism as if it is that. You decide, listeners, you decide. So this is, a, oh, the blurb from The Three Faces of Nelly. Literary Mean Girls weren't born in 2002. Oh, no, this is me. Sorry. Um, as Laura Ingalls Wilder's books about the late 19th century make clear, of course, they weren't born in 2002. And any of you answering my who are your favorite literary mean girls, um, the, the ones we go to are 19th century, 18th century. They're not post-1990. We did not only just discover that girls could be mean as well as boys. Um, as a trope in fiction, I quite like this. Again, she represents, this is me quoting someone else, the apex of the idea that men can fight each other out in the open, but women are forced to be underhanded in their jockeying for alpha status. Her machinations make plots get thicker and tension ratchet up. So the argument for this kind of mean girl 
is that not that they're feminist icons, like like the attempt to reclaim Veruca Salt as a feminist icon, but that they're monsters, very particular monsters made by patriarchy. So the aggression that should be directed at, at the social world in which they find themselves is instead directed at other women, right? It's a function of their powerlessness, which, yeah, men can fight each other out in the open. Now, the, the kind of crass gender stereotyping going on there, equally, as I'm, I'm sure anybody socialized as male um, listening right now can tell you, is nonsense. Boys do gossip too. Boys do social bullying too. Boys can even be emotionally intelligent. Amazing to these researchers in the 90s and, and early 2000s. Boys also have emotions. Um, so monsters made by patriarchy. Let's have a look at that. I've got two new messages. Yeah, shock horror. Uh, the ones that I'm particularly drawn to because I've read them so many times are Jane Austen's monsters. And she has so many tiny scale, vicious little female monsters in these tiny social worlds that she paints. Um, Isabella Thorpe in Northanger Abbey, Caroline Bingley in Pride and Prejudice. What a demon that woman is. But again, not in any kind of, you know, throwing a child with glasses off a cliff to make a point kind of mean other kinds of mean. Lucy Steele in Sense and Sensibility, who uh, Heidi Drake has been chiming in about how much she hates Lucy Steele since she saw me mention this topic like 18 hours ago. So Lucy Steele lives in our imaginations as an absolute monster. Uh, Mary Crawford in Mansfield Park. And of course, in one of the books, she makes the mean girl the main girl, Emma, um, who, who handsome, clever, rich, a handsome, clever bitch, right? I made that joke yesterday, but I liked it. So I just thought I'd do it again. Uh, before I go on, let's mention another one of our show sponsors, the History Hotline podcast. The History Hotline is the hottest things for all things black history and beyond, a space to have honest conversations about black history and how it impacts the world we live in. The History Hotline podcast explores some of the facets of black history ignored by the mainstream, your teachers and the textbooks. Check out the podcast by following the History Hotline on all good podcast platforms. Uh, Miss Trunchbull, feminist icon. Matt, I think Miss Trunchbull is a teaching icon. Um, if you listened last week, and there's no reason why you should have done, because I was on at the hour of nine o'clock when all sensible people are in school, I pointed out that the Trunchbull A runs the room. B is seen looking, like Snape, by the way, all of these people are actually our teacher heroes. Um, and, and C is teaching powerful knowledge, which even when they're discussing rebelling against her, the girls in Miss Trunchbull's classes are mentioning. So the hippopotamuses of the Limpopo River come up frequently in their um, discussion of how to humiliate her by pouring treacle on her chair and whatnot, thus showing that they've committed that powerful knowledge to their long-term memories. Her techniques work, people. Discovery learning, which is what obviously Miss Honey encourages, is not a thing. And also Miss Honey violates every single teacher's standard possible. Terrible safeguarding nightmare. Trunchbull for the win. <laughs> Mrs. D, Mrs. I, Mrs. F, F, I, Mrs. C, Mrs. U, Mrs. L, T, Y. Yeah. <laughs> I hate acronyms, by the way. Um, all the short versions of learning things wedge themselves in your head and you can never get rid of them again. I will never be able to write down the word beautiful without chanting in my head, B-E-A-U-T-I-F-U-L. Why? Just learn how, just learn the words. Yeah. Or 
B-E-A-utiful. Mmm, lovely. Right, I'd like to make the case for every single one of these awful women in um in Jane Austen that actually they do work when at according to that paradigm of women who have extremely constrictive lives and absolutely no way to gain real power have to turn on each other because as every single novel shows us um and as uh Charlotte Lucas says out loud in Pride and Prejudice marriage is woman's pleasantest preservative from want it is literally the only career these middle class whether they're lower middle class or upper middle class girls have the only thing they can do is get married so what we see is a very vicious world where people fight for marriage prospects uh, they can be high and mighted and, and pretend to be wonderful like jane bingley or like lizzie but as so often happens in pride and prejudice some of the more the the more psychologically ugly characters have a habit of coming out with the truth and charlotte lucas's observation again that marriage is woman's pleasantest preservative from want means that isabella thorpe in northanger abbey while she may personally be monstrous is fundamentally driven by the the only thing she can do to survive which is to to snag a good husband and she doesn't care who she tramples along the way caroline bingley in pride and prejudice their new money they're socially precarious she knows she's not liked um she, I can't believe I'm defending these monsters right now, but I am. I've started, so I'm just hashtag leaning into it. Uh, Caroline Bingley, that those are the choices she has. And she is literally in competition with Elizabeth Bennet. She's quite right. And Elizabeth Bennet wins. Um, shout out to Caroline Bingley for being the character who speaks the line about reading on the five pound note, um, <laughs> which every single person who's familiar with Jane Austen is still perpetually outraged that the United Kingdom chose to put a picture of Jane Austen on some money and then the quote they chose about how much they like reading was by a character who literally didn't like reading at all and was merely reading in order to try vainly to snare a man. Lucy Steele in Sense and Sensibility, those girls are precarious. I mean, I hate Lucy Steele, but she's quite right. She's got a marriage contract and it's really a lot like a job contract and everything in her life depends on it. Mary Crawford in Mansfield Park, again, that's the life they've got that she that she and her brother are in the most precarious situation so really it makes total sense and then emma in emma misunderstood character so it's emma woodhouse handsome clever rich seemed to unite the best blessings of, of existence and i'd ask you to go back to that word seemed so she's like regina george in mean girls like veruca salt in charlie and the chocolate factory like so many of these entitled consuming karen monsters she's like that except her life is actually incredibly constricted she might be heir to the house but you know as she says she basically never left it because her father who is presented as an affable old man is really quite a monster of psychological abuse i put it to you people that emma is a gothic novel that emma is trapped in a gothic edifice with her father as the evil count who keeps her there except in this book it's very hard to see that because she is she looks so powerful and because the way he expresses his control is by insisting that she eat a carefully boiled egg and not leave the house at all at any time in case she gets cold oh isn't that sweet no she's trapped in the house um so they conform to that i think we'll say yes let's go to the other one that comes up the most oh we got some messages there yeah, Dan, again, the socialization of niceness for girls means there is charm in the rebellions, even if the self-serving nature of some of it is problematic. 
interesting that we seem to be in the new age moral panic, scapegoating the agents of socialization, such as the school system or indeed parenting. Dan, that's a fascinating point. Okay, so Dan is suggesting there, there's several things to unpack there. But what I really like is the idea that if niceness is what's socialized for girls, then the rebellion, the only rebellion and most effective rebellion possible is to not be nice, is to be mean. And therefore, again, that's the argument that, that you know, social norms create these monsters, that the presence of these monsters is in themselves a critique of more acceptable femininity. It's the flip side. Sort of Lucy in Dracula. Now, she's the most angel in the housey perfect girl, but she is absolutely the flip side of the crazy vagina dentata, man-eating, vampire-chomping lady. Now, her hair, of course, changes color. She's blonde when she's nice. She's brunette when she's nasty. I love Lucy. She's one of my favorite characters in fiction. Um, and then here, and then, but also Dan's pointing out that the, the very kind of institutions that do the socialization, um, the school system, parenting, are the ones who are now being looked at, blamed, people, moral panic around in society. I think we'll have to come back to that. Uh, Mal pointing out she wins by being their feisty self. And Dan is saying all of these girls center on the gets it or fails two categories and so leads to judging whether with privilege especially they are worthy of praise in a very closed loop. Yeah. You love Lucy Steele, are you saying, Dan? Well, see, I'd never allowed myself to consider that before because I, I, I find what's called Eleanor Dashwood moves me to tears with her selfless life and habit of not having emotions and having to shut them up. And, and you know, the most she can express herself is when she finally gets a bit snitty behind closed doors. Um, there's something really charming in Hugh Grant and English about that. But you're right. It's um, it's it's I'm actually admiring an utter pathology of repression there repression of desire repression of of the self repression of anger so much repression of anger so yeah lucy Steele. lucy Steele is a necessary monster she's the other side i like it all right speaking of the very closed loop another very famous mean girl that comes up if you type literary mean girls and this turns out to be something that um, a lot of people like to do because there are so many mean girls in women's fiction. Blanche Ingram from Jane Eyre. Do you remember Blanche? Uh, she is, again, a rich, a very rich, entitled heiress sort of woman um, who is a threat in the early scenes of Jane Eyre to Jane because she's flirting with Mr. Rochester. What I found interesting when I was going to look at an extract is that we first really see her character, her monstrosity, when she's talking about governesses. Right. So Blanche Ingram swans in. We've got Jane, um, one of the rare examples of a, a lowly, you know, human in a in a fictional 19th century novel. Um, and this is what she says about governesses. I have just one word to say of the whole tribe. They are a nuisance. Not that I ever suffered much from them. I took care to turn the tables. What tricks Theodore and I used to play on our Miss Wilsons and Mrs. Grays and Madame Joubert's. Mary was always too sleepy to join with a plot with spirit. The best fun was Madame Joubert. Miss Wilson was a poor sickly thing, lachrymose and low-spirited, not worth the trouble of vanquishing in short. And Miss Gray was coarse and insensible. No blow took effect on her. But poor Madame Joubert. I see her yet in raging passions when we had driven her to extremities, spilt our tea, crumbled our bread and butter, tossed our books up to the ceiling, and played a caravari with the ruler and the desks of Fender and the fire irons. 
Theodore, do you remember those merry days? Isn't that interesting? Because I feel like Blanche Ingram is pulling all of our strands of mean girlness from 2002 and 4 together there. Because on the one hand, as Dan said, there is a thrill in seeing girls violate niceness. And here we have complete gender equality before formal schooling. So she and her brother are raised by the governess together before he will then go off to school. So they have an equal education, just like those 90s studies, which magically learned to recognize that that girls before puberty are just as violent as boys, um, that they seem to have exactly the same pattern of externalized rage instead of internalized and socialized rage. So there they are, gender equity in the classroom, violently rebelling against, and after 30, good point, violently rebelling against rule, right? It's a literal rebellion. They refuse to be governed by the governess. Yeah. But, 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 what they are doing is also performing monstrosity of entitlement. They can do this because they are rich children and they can do it to servants. So this is me making a face, trying to decide if I could even pretend to make the case that Blanche Ingram represents a type of feminist empowerment. But the irony, of course, is that she does represent a type of, of feminist empowerment, but only because she can enact her privileged status upon far less powerful people. Yep, Dan, again, we've all been overconditioned by Mary Poppins to see conformity as the plus. We should see a type of governess as a form of socialized oppression here, surely. Yeah, exactly. So teachers are represented. Hey, teacher, leave them kids alone. Hey, governesses, leave those kids alone. Except that <laughs> teachers are, are not the man, right? And in this case, they're not even men. So who are you rebelling against? Other women, because you can't possibly rebel against men. That's just not possible. So we can take a sort of mad woman in the attic argument here. I am starting to see that it's really quite a successful argument that 19th century, we take Blanche Ingram as an attempt to bring down 19th century patriarchy gone very, very wrong. So maybe what I'm saying, Dan, is that in one of your schools, if you've got some mean girls, you should really let them violently overthrow the patriarchy, which is you, and, and let them run the school. And then uh, we'll see how that works. I'm quite sure it'd be a lovely utopia because girls don't um, are never mean, as we know from the mid-90s when we suddenly discovered that girls might be mean. Uh, we also love a lot of our awful anti-heroines. Um, Katie Fairhurst, just before the show started, said Becky Sharp. Becky Sharp from um, Trollope's Vanity Fair is obviously a monster, but she's a really engaging monster. A character, now this one, this is peak getting it wrong. A character who comes up on, on lots of lists called things like legendary literary mean girls and mean girls we love to hate, and mean girl heroines, is Scarlett O'Hara from Gone with the Wind. Now, there's a lot to say about Scarlett O'Hara from Gone with the Wind, but possibly the most important one is that she, of course, is owns a plantation full of enslaved people. So she is a, a white woman in a precarious position in a pre-war South. She's Irish rather than um, Anglo or French. So we managed to position her as being an outsider. She's, she's full of feisty rage at all times. Um, she somehow is the victim uh, at various points. But again, 
she owns other human beings. Lots and lots of them. So she's sort of an iconic character for the problems with going, I love my feisty, difficult, problematic woman. She's just kicking against the bricks, that mean girl. I know she steals Melanie's husband, and I know she marries someone just to be mean. And I know all of those things, but in the end, isn't she a little bit of us? No, in the end, she's the slave owner. That's what Scarlett O'Hara is. There are limits to embracing our um, angry, difficult girls. Yes, Mal, Scarlett is a survivor, but, <laughs> and the but is so huge that, that it sort of crashes down and, and breaks the entire conversation right? and, and points to the issues with all of our attempts to reclaim these mean girls, the mean girls that we're being shown over and over again, except by Jane Austen, who is an absolute genius, are also privileged. So it's more like they're a female face of patriarchy. This has turned into an English essay live on air. Um, it's more like they're a female face of patriarchy. Oh, Curly's wife. Excellent example, that chap there. Yeah. Now, when, when you read that book with kids, which thankfully we don't anymore, but which I did spend the first six years of my career endlessly reading with kids, Curly's wife is, you have to actually go outside the text to find any sense of her as not a monster. You have to go to John Steinbeck's letter to the actress playing her who wrote him a letter going like, dude, how am I supposed to play this character? She just seems like a monster. And he wrote that letter that we all give to our kids and, and earnestly would tell them to think about this, that... um. You know, she's just, she just wants to express herself. She just wants to actualize her own reality. She's not a slut, despite the fact that she's called a tramp throughout the book. Probably she's a virgin, Steinbeck says, in a weird extra textual intervention that teenagers throughout history have been unconvinced by. Um, but yeah, so her, her victim status turns into the only way she can express that is is through enacting power upon more victimizable people. Um, the moment where she says, I could get you strung up to crooks is is the moment where we, we have to break. Yeah, Dan saying, uh, isn't the issue that almost always in literature, there are key barriers to allowing them to be genuine heroines, whereas male heroes are allowed to be purer. That's a really interesting point. Do our literary mean girls exist because um, we can't allow them to be the main characters? Do Are these flaws the only way that they can be allowed to take center stage. Will we get a multi-million enormous cultural juggernaut like Mean Girls if if there weren't Mean Girls in it, if you see what I mean? You know that, that thing where they go, oh, boys won't read that, boys won't watch that, it has to have a male heroine. You know, we, we can't possibly have a female heroine. Is it only through the creation of female monsters that we can bring in the crowds in sufficient numbers? And so, yeah, Aunt Lydia and Testaments, absolutely. And Dan pointing out, is this mean girl streak then not a form of internalized trauma in most cases, even when privileged? There's money in othering other women. So, yeah, I mean, but what I find really interesting about all of this, and I'm going to be wrapping up now and going to get much more coffee as I need. But what's really interesting in all of this is that, that all of these arguments are really compelling. You know, it's absolutely true that Curly's wife is is crushed and broken by the system that she finds herself in. It is also absolutely true that there are hard limits to our abilities to reclaim that character or celebrate that character when she is quite literally offering a lynching when she feels like it. So, you know, 
Yeah, less nuance with bad women. Men can be flawed but likable. Right. So, um, fascinating discussion, people. It's it's lovely having you all here this morning. I'm going to go away and think about all of this, and I think it's going to inform my teaching this week as well. Um, Aunt Lydia in the Testaments, Curly's wife, Lucy. It's the nice girl creating the nicety girl. These mad women in the attic all come from social acculturation. And what in the end do we want to do with them? Maybe we just need to walk away from the mean girl trope. Just walk away entirely. Walk away from the girl trope. Right. Thank you very much for joining in this morning. Thank you for finding me again after um, everything collapsed this morning. Thank you for your absolutely gorgeous story. Lilith, perfect, Matt. Um, thank you for the absolutely gorgeous story about the tumbleweave. And let's all think about our own childhoods and decide entitlement, monstrosity. Can we forgive ourselves for everything we've ever done because we were the victims? Yeah, let's go with that. Right. Uh, bye, everyone. I'll see you next Monday, same time, 7 a.m. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio. Oh, you know what? I left out and it's unforgivable because um, it's Mal who's been on with us all all show. Uh, let me just find Mal CPD's message from our sponsor. Which, um, as you can tell from Mal's insightful discussion of um, women and power and how power is redirected, um, is one of her specialties. So, one of the sponsors of this show is Mal CPD. If you struggle with people pleasing and find it a constant battle to manage different and difficult personalities, then why not challenge and empower your team through the Mal CPD Essential Coaching Skills for School Leaders course? <coughs> Alternatively, great gain practical skills to become a strong and compassionate leader through the assertive leadership and emotionally intelligent leader course. All male CPD courses are accredited by the Institute of Leadership and Management. Find out more at www.malcpd.com. And actually, Mal, I will be fascinated to apply some of the principles we've been talking about today to management strategies. So bye again, guys. Really going this time. <laughs>